So I, I say that I can't say what kind of a speaker this is, but the man is an alcoholic, and he's sober. And he's, he's come here to share his experiences with us. Uh, I say I will now give you Dewey. My name is G. D. Spears, and the G in my name is Anonymous. <coughs> I, I've been around this place for quite a long time. In fact, I've been around so long that a great many people refer to me as the old master. I regret to report to you, however, that many of those people do not enunciate properly. <coughs> And although I have been a member for a long time, I am not an alcoholic. And if there are any skeptical persons in this room who like free I can prove that to you. If you'll go back to the Mason State Hospital at Mason, Ohio, and check the admission records for 1934 and 35, you will find my name there on two different entries, not as a common, ordinary alcoholic, but a chronic inebriate. I like that so much better. It sounds as dignified. Now, before I start my talk, I, I want to confess to you that I can't hope to compete with the talk you heard up there tonight. But I can promise you this, I know I apologize right here that I'm not going to shoot you up. So if you'll be pleased with me, I'll go out. <laughs> before I became a member of this fellowship, I was able to talk on quite a wide, a wide variety of subjects, very interesting subjects too. And by using the maximum amount of imagination and the minimum amount of truth, I could come up with some pretty good stories. For instance, if you wanted to talk about professional baseball, I was the guy who used to fan out Chris Speaker and Ty Cobb and those fellow babies, those fellow three or four times each game. If you wanted to be talking about football, I was the guy that stopped Jim Thorpe and Evers and the Ghost Gimmer tracks, no bother at all. If you wanted to go deep uh, sea fishing, I was, I was with you. If you want to talk about big game money, I was there. Always a hero of the story. And I'm sure that I could have interested every one of you in my personal adventures in space travel a long time before they ever heard of the Sputnik. Because I could go into orbit many, many times when I never had to use the, had the benefit of a rocket. No. But when it came into AA, this fellowship cramped my style. They insist on the maximum amount of truth and the minimum amount of imagination. So you're going to have to put up with a very ordinary story about a very ordinary alcoholic. Thank you. <clears throat> I didn't get started in my drinking career early in life as some. Uh, but no one can say that I didn't make up for it more than I, as the time that went by. There were two reasons for my late start. <clears throat> one, uh, when I was about 13 years old, my favorite uncle died of acute alcoholism. He was more than my uncle. He was my pal, my friend. And uh, I was heartbroken and left an indelible impression on me. And for a long time after that, I associated evil with every phase of, every phase of alcohol. The result was I <coughs> went through school and chose to get a toast of life. The other... Yeah. The other reason was in my own direct family. Uh, we, there was a law in the Spies family that uh, on Sunday you went to church. That was it. And that law was just as strict and just as durable as any laws in these prisons. As soon as we were able to toddle around, we were wrestled off to Sunday school, and as soon as we were housebroken, we stayed for church. That meant from the time I was about that high, I was three services a day, sometimes during the week. 
I was, uh, my father was not a fanatical Christian, but he was very industrious as a Christian. And he was very generous with my time. If there's anything that happened in the church, the janitor didn't show up, I could fire the furnace. I could move the minister's lawn. I could ring the bell. I could dust the pews and do all those things while the kids were out having fun. So I had made up my mind, and I was, by the time I was ready to graduate, I was so filled up with the church, it was right up to here. And I was looking forward to the time that I could graduate from high school and go on out and get a job away from home and live my kind of a life. But before I got around to graduating, some of my busybody relatives and friends started checking up on the family tree, and they discovered there never had been a minister in the Spee's home before, in the family before, and there should be, and I was it. Well, everybody was, uh, seemed to be wildly enthusiastic about this thing with me, and I rebelled as much as I could. But that phased my life. My dad was a two-fisted, aggressive man, used to having his own way, and more importantly, he was bigger than I was. So I went to seminary. The end of the first year, I was faced with the most important problem in my life. I've always believed in God and always believed in Jesus Christ. I was brought up that way. But I have never been able to swallow quite all the man-made theology that tried to drape on Christ's shoulders. I doubt very much whether he could recognize some of the teachings of his own religion if he came back today. Now, my problem was this. Shall I go on and start to, and preach out through the country something I don't believe and go to hell as a hypocrite? Or should I come right out and tell them I don't believe and go to hell as an unbeliever? I decided the latter way would be better. I finally mustered up enough courage and went down to the brass that I didn't think that I was cut out to be a minister, and oddly enough, they concurred in my belief. So I gave the ministry the best break they ever had. They'll probably never appreciate it. But I gave them a real break when I left the Senate and I went down state and took up metallurgy. I didn't drink one much when I was in school. <coughs> Speed's kids were sixes. About a year and a half apart, the money wasn't too plentiful. I knew I couldn't spend a lot of money crowded on in education. I got out of school, and I majored in metallurgy, and I was able to get a job with one of the major steel companies as a research metallurgist and metallurgist and chemist. I worked in the lab for about two years, didn't drink much there, and then I fell in love with the steel business. Now, those of you who are not familiar with the steel business, there's damn little glamour about it, regardless of what you may have read in the Saturday Evening Post. I got a transfer in the plant, and down there they work with a wheelbar, a shovel, a crowbar, and a sledge, and you work, and it's damn little hot work. But I loved it. And down there they had a slogan, if you want to make good steel, you've got to learn to drink good whiskey. If you want to sell steel, you've got to learn to hold your whiskey. Well, it seemed to me that all that stood between me and success was to find somebody who could teach me to drink the right kind of way, and that wasn't any trouble at all. There were a lot of teachers around there. I soon picked up some very good ones. I turned out to be a very hot student. And soon I was bending my elbows with the rest of them. I got along very well. For the first ten years I was in the steel business, I was promoted over men who were above me in age and, and seniority. And they didn't seem to mind. I think the reason was that I was a pretty good spender. I was willing to drink any time, anything, anywhere, with anybody. I continued on the second ten years with more promotions and more money, which meant more drinking, and this eventually cost me my job. One morning, the boss called me in and told me, due to the depression and falling off the business, they were going to have to abolish my department, which was a nice, gentle way of firing me without using those nasty words. Well, I was, I was joked, I must confess. I was a little bit sore about it. I was surprised, and then I felt sorry for them, because I couldn't understand how they hoped to run an organization that size without me, because I was a big cog in that organization. But you know, not just a few months ago, I picked up a paper, and I read the financial statement last year, 
And despite the fact that I haven't been with them for a long, long time, they, they seem to be doing fairly well. I guess they'll continue to do it without my help. Well, when I came to my senses again, I promised myself I would get a better job than I ever thought of getting. And with the luck of an alcoholic, about six weeks later, I was appointed liquidating, liquidating manager of a bank. That sounds pretty good, but unfortunately, my idea of liquidating and their ideas of liquidating didn't jive. And uh, about a year passed, and I'm out looking for the help, reading the help wanted ads again. Things were going pretty rough. I'd lost all my material gains in the stock market crash, my home, insurance. My home was breaking up, broken up by the boys, two children taken away from me. And uh, <clears throat> my mother had died about that particular time, and she'd been a mainstay form of mine. And I was worried about my drinking, because I knew I wasn't drinking like the rest of the folks. So one day I took a little time off of myself and tried to figure this thing out. What was wrong with me? And I came up with a very brilliant answer to my problem. It wasn't my fault that I was getting drunk. It was these lousy bums I was running around with. Those are the folks that were getting me drunk. I had to have somebody to blame on, and there it was. So now, why not start out and start my life all over again? I'd go out somewhere where the sky is blue and the air is fresh and clean, and start all over. That's what I started to do. And for the next ten years, I crossed this country, north and south, east and west, catty-cornered and kitty-cornered, following the geographic cure. Now, the fallacy of that is this. If you're an alcoholic, you don't run away from John Barricorn. John walks in your shadow. When you stop, he stops. All you have to do is let your bar down, and he's out at you. And then I have to go on out and get another job. Now, I had a little plan at first. I would get myself a job. That wasn't any trouble at all. I could always get a job. And I would work like the devil for, say, eight or ten weeks, letting him attract a little attention. I stayed in at night, so I didn't cross around. <clears throat> now, it really worked. But you know, when you're young, you can't sit around in the lobby of the YMCA reading the ladies' home journal every night. There comes a time when you want to find out what's going on around the town, and I could always find out down at the bar. About the time my company was ready to promote me, I was off on a bender with one of my newly formed town friends, then I had to go back and start all over again. And by the time I was ready to come into AA, I was a total bankrupt. For many phases of life you want to look at, spiritual, mentally, financially, physically, what have you. You might describe me as a rimless zero in the red, in the red hand inside of the ledger. And I want to say very sincerely and honestly tonight that if I am anything above that rimless zero tonight, I owe it to God, to Alcoholics Anonymous, and my non-alcoholic wife, who has inspired me to put AA above all other issues in my life, and I'll be forever grateful for it for that. My geographic cure came to a very buck close one Christmas day down east, down the Valley Forge Hotel. I was feeling very sorry for myself. I was alone. By the way, I was a periodic drinker, and I was in one of my good periods. I had a good job and had money in my pocket. Christmas time came along, but I had no family to go to. I went into the hotel feeling very sorry for myself. I went down to the bar, called my friend Al, the bartender, told him to send three fifths up to my room. He said, we can't do it. He said, it's hard to get. And I put on a great sales talk. I told him I was having a very important party up in my room, and I'd spent a lot of money in that bar, and that I was entitled to my the three fifths. And he broke down and sent it up. Now, the only thing I neglected to tell him was that I was the only one invited to that party. And with three fifths, I did pretty good that day. About, you, about evening, dusk, the owner of the hotel who knew I was in there called in to see how I get along. And I had developed violent hiccups, too violent, they affected my heart, and I couldn't talk. He took, opened the door, took one look at me, and sent to the doctor. 
I was too ill to move, so he shot something into me, and a little, some, few hours later, sent me to the hospital. A day or two later, when the fog lifted, the doctor came in to see me. He was a little short, squat fellow with sort of a perverse sense of humor, I thought. And he sat down on the edge of the bed, and he said, told me my drinking career had come to the crossroads. He said, you've got to make up your mind now whether you want to go down this way, whether you want to drink and die, or sober up and live. And he said, you're not very well acquainted around this little town, are you? No, I said, I'm not. He said, well, you have a hell of a nice graveyard out here at the edge of town. He said, there's nice eyes going up over the tombstones. There's nice big pine trees out there, and a lot of revolutionary heroes are buried out there, and you're working for a good, reliable company. If you want to drink, I think they'll plant you there, and they'll cost yourself a walk out. Well, general officer, nobody ever talked to me like that before, and he really scared me, for at least ten minutes anyway. And then I figured out, well, he was just trying to scare me, but I wasn't too sure. He sounded pretty convincing. I talked to an elderly nurse, and she told me she didn't think I realized how close I came to dying that night. So as much as I like to drink, I like to live better. You can do a lot of things when you see the man in the side in front of you. And I decided I would cut out drinking. I had this in mind. I drank like a gentleman for 10 years or more after I got out of school. Now, if I stay off this stuff for a, a month or uh, 18 months or something like that, and give Mother Nature a new chance to get in there and rebuild my stomach, there's no reason why I still can't live, uh, drink like a gentleman. That's what I started working on. And that was the most miserable period of my life. Of my family, I was the only one of eight who couldn't drink. I was terribly sorry for myself. I got out on the club car of the train when the rest of us were joining their drinks. I'm sitting there with a lousy bottle of ginger ale. I go in the, in the hotel rooms at night with the lights are low and the women are beautiful and the liquor smells wonderful. I'm with my lousy bottle of ginger ale. I have to tell people that I have a nervous breakdown or getting over attacked with a flu. Incidentally, I had 17 varieties of flu. I had, had to have that many to keep myself covered up. Well, when that terrible period is going on, and those of you who have gone, only those who have gone through it will appreciate it. One morning I got a, a letter asking me how I'd like to do it with New York and take a job in the export steel sales division of all companies, the Republic Steel Corporation, that fired me many years ago. Now I recognize that as an opportunity to come back, and I promised myself that I would not drink on the job. So I started to work, and I kept that promise for about three weeks. And then I began to come to myself a little bit, and I realized that my customers were my bread and butter. And the other salesmen were buying drinks for their customers, and it didn't seem quite fair to my customers not to buy and drink with them. So I weakened. I would drink with my customers, but only my customers. Well, that was a, a mistake to start with, because I soon began to get too many customers. Now, that brings us up to 1939. In 1939, at Akron, Ohio, in the home of Hank Williams, there were a group of men who were later to become known as Alcoholics Anonymous, Corrigan and Weekly Meetings. And there were 12 men from Cleveland who came down to Tenders meetings each week. There was a rumor afloat that these 12 men from Cleveland were about ready to separate from the Oxford group to form a group of their own because there were certain facets of the Oxford group's religion that were not suitable to some of these alcoholics. And to be very honest with you, some of the behavior of the alcoholics was not very suitable to the Oxford group. Dr. Bob knew about this talk, this rumor, and he didn't oppose it. But he didn't think at the present time that the group as a whole was quite mature enough to make a complete break. Nevertheless, these men, these 12 men, took the bull by the horns and in the spring of 1939 went to Cleveland to form a group. Now, at that particular time down in my office in New York, there was another rumor of a separation floating around that affected me a lot more personally. And one morning it happened. The old man called me in. 
And he said, Steve, I think you have a brilliant drinking career ahead of you. I never knew a man who was so willing to drink anything, anytime, anywhere. And he thought it was a shame for a man who had such a brilliant drinking career to have it spoiled by anything as prosaic as a job. So he was going to separate me from my job so I might devote 100% of my time to drinking instead of only 95%. And I'm out of work again, and I don't know what to do about it. So I do what an alcoholic does when he doesn't know what to do. I went out and got stiff for about six weeks. And then something strange happened in my life. I suppose it happens in the lives of every man. Something you can't quite understand. You're apt to call it coincidental. I think perhaps I did. Uh, six weeks after I was fired from this job in New York, I was in Cleveland as district sales manager of an industrial chemical company. Now, watch this. I had been in, I had been steeped in steel all my life. I knew nothing but steel. My technical education, my patent experience all tied up in operating and sales and managing a steel business. Now, I'm in Cleveland, and Tom didn't want to go to, salesman for uh, an industrial chemical company. I'm inclined to think that I had, had very little to do with that. I thought this was an answer to somebody's prayers to me. I think God was beginning to weave a new fabric, a new pattern in the fabric of my life, unconsciously. So I went, I went to Cleveland. I was fortunate enough to get a home to live in, a uh, place to live, in the home of a very wealthy lady who thought I was a perfect gentleman because I told her I didn't drink, and she wanted somebody around the house who didn't drink. I did, I must confess, I forgot a few of the details during the conversation. So this job panned out beautifully. It was a big money job from the start. And everything was going fine. I'm on my way back, and the goose is hanging high. Went on about, oh, about probably two months. And then I began to get despondent spells, bruised. I thought the boss didn't care for me. I thought my customers didn't appreciate me. I thought people didn't like me. And nothing was further than the truth. I was better off than I was in for a long time. And this despondency got so bad, I had to go to see a doctor. Doc checked me all over very carefully. He couldn't find anything organically wrong, except that I had low, low blood pressure. And uh, he said, uh, do you drink, please? And I said, oh, no, certainly not. You have a very idea. So I can't complain about his... his uh, his prescription for me. He said, well, I if you would get yourself a quart of good brandy, and every night before you have your dinner, take one big drink, just one now, each day, and I think it'll help you. Well, now, up to that time, I could take doctors or leave them. I didn't think too much of them, because they knew too much about me. But here was a fellow I liked. Here was a fellow who had a hell of a lot of good common sense. I liked this guy, and I learned to rub off my heels getting down there to get this quart of brandy. And I did what he told me to do religiously that first week. I didn't want to cheat myself. I, I drank and sleep and insisted about that much in a water glass. And by the time that drink got kicking around, the world began to look where it was tinted again. I'd done it for a week, and I was never so proud of anything I'd done in my life. Next week, I started fooling around with nightcaps. I'd get into bed, get in my book, take a big slug, and just ooze off into sleep, and it was wonderful. And then I met a fellow on the street one day, damn him. And he said, well, how about a glass of beer? Well, beer doesn't hurt anybody, sure. So we went in, and he said, well, how about a shot? I said, make it a little shot. So we had a shot and a beer, and then we had a beer and a shot, and then we had a shot and beer. And three weeks later, the old lady, who thought I was a perfect gentleman, was trying to find somebody to bring me out of that house without calling the cops. So uh, then another thing, strange thing happened. In the city of Cleveland, a city of upwards of a million people, there were 12 men trying to start an A group. My landlady was a big woman, she was a religious woman. But she had a brother who lived downtown Cleveland who worked in the office. 
And there was a man working in that office whose sister was engaged to a cousin of a brother-in-law of a sister-in-law, way around the bush, one of these AA fellows. That's how I come to be acquainted with AA. It happened on Sunday. I can remember as a little yesterday. I was stretched across my bed all day long for the simple reason I was too drunk to stand up. But I wasn't alone in my room. There was a, there was a miniature Sousa band in my room. The, the players were about that high. And they had red uniforms on, black beards. And they marched up underneath my bed, up over me, down over here, and went round and round playing the stars and stripes forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, all afternoon. And they were still playing it when the knock came to the door. And believe me, after you hear the stars and stripes forever for about four hours, it begins to taste of the keg. I never heard that piece played like that before or since, and I hope to God I never do again. And they were still playing it when the knock came. Before I get to the door, in there stood the Holy Roller himself, Mr. A.A. He told me that he under, that I didn't know anything about A.A., I didn't even know what it was, what it stood for. And he told me that uh, he understood I had a drinking problem, and he wanted to talk to me about A.A. Well, I knew he was as when he mentioned my drinking problem, and I told him, uh, I had a case of granddad alongside of my bed, half a case. I told him, now when I want to drink, all I have to do is reach down here and grab a bottle. I said, it's no problem at all. And in my wildest drunken imagination, I couldn't figure what in the hell, what the hell an automobile club had to do because I was drinking. I told him about that, too. And he said there were only two days in this one. So he talked and talked and talked. I, I think he was vaccinated with some kind of recording reader because he just kept on talking. And I was hoping he would stop because I was due for a drink and I didn't want to drink in front of him because he sounded as if he might be a minister. So I did. The next thing happened, I passed out. And the first, next morning I waked up and I was in the nursing home, south of Cleveland, and there I heard the first horrible things about AA. Two fellows out in the hall were saying, in AA, it's total divide the rest of your life. Well, my chin dropped from here, clear down to here. When they left, I put my bathrobe on my slippers, and I went down, there was a pay station there in that hospital, about a mile and a half down the hall, or it was nearly that far that morning, and I finally got there, and I called this fellow up who pulled me in the right before, and I said, I'm, I'll listen. I know I'm drinking too much. I'm willing to do something about it. But as I held the bills, let's not go to the board with this thing. What do you do on Christmas time or when you had a birthday or when you went back with the homecoming game? You had to have a little drink. No, oh, we don't do it that way. Well, I thought perhaps you could do it, but you might as well lie down and die. It wouldn't be any point eleven. You couldn't have a fun anymore. So when he asked me to come to with him to AA meetings, I went with no idea whatever of joining this crackpot organization. I went out of sheer respect and gratitude to this fellow because he was a darn nice guy and he probably saved my life. Now I listened to what they had to say for about six or seven meetings, and I grudgingly admitted that some of it sounded pretty fair, but it was for alcoholics. And as that, as far as that was concerned, it didn't affect me because it was for alcoholics, and I quit going to meetings. Now there's a story coming up. I know my wife is closing her ears to it because she's heard it the last 26 years. And I don't stop me, though I still like to call tell about it. This story of mine has to do about two soldiers who were up for their physical examination prior to the discharge. And Doc noticed on the cheek of the one fellow had a red spot there, perfect shape of strawberry, size of strawberry, same color. And asked him whether he had got it in the service. And he said no. He said about three but his mother was pregnant with him, about three months before he was born. She developed an appetite for strawberries. She ate them, she drank them, she slept them, and talked them. When he was born, she marked him. That strawberry was there in her cheek, on his cheek. The next guy comes up and Doc says, asked him, what do you think about that guy's idea? Ah, that guy's nuts. He was taking my own case about three months before I was born. My mother went downtown on Saturday afternoon, 
went into a music store and bought a book of records, and as she was leaving the store, she slept on the icy sidewalk and fell. And she broke every one of those records, but it didn't affect me, it didn't affect me, it didn't affect me, it didn't affect me, it didn't affect me. Well, I was just as silly as that guy was, because here I have AA right in the palm of my hand, and I tossed it aside because I didn't think it affected me. And I quit going to meetings, but fortunately for me, only a few weeks later, I put on the benders and all benders. I wake up one morning, and I really thought I was going to die. I thought I'd had it, and I'm serious about that. I must confess that that particular time, I had a very inflated opinion of my own intelligence. And that morning it occurred to me that I didn't have the brains of a dog, that no self-respecting dog would go back and pick at a poison bone time and time again, knowing full well what it would do to him, and that's what exactly, exactly what I was doing with the whiskey bottle. And when I looked at that half-filled bottle in the dresser that morning, it occurred to me that all the real troubles, I say real troubles, of my life, I could trace right down in the neck of that bottle. My domestic troubles, my financial troubles, my job troubles, troubles get along with people, quiet sometimes. So I made up my mind that I was going to quit, not because somebody was pushing him into it, because I wanted to quit. I was damn sick and tired of being sick and tired. Now, I've been, been over backwards all my life, trying never to speak as one with authority because I don't have, I don't think I qualify to speak with authority. But I will say this far, I think that's, before, that's what we have to do, go into this thing for ourselves and ourselves alone. I didn't know what to do. I felt I was at the crossroads and frustrated with a stone wall. I thought I had tried everything, but I have to remember, a fellow I knew went into AA, and I thought he was worse drunk than I was, and he was doing swell. It was just possible now, maybe I missed, maybe those holy rulers had something that I, that I didn't pick up. And I went down to this nursing home again on my own. About the second day when I began to clear up a little bit, I came downstairs and I talked to the fellow around the place. I said, Bill, I want to know all about AA from scratch. And he looked at me and laughed a little bit. He said, Speed, you remember you were down here a few weeks ago and you were telling us how to run AA. Remember that? Yeah. You see, I thought if somebody would rewrite that book and take a lot of the God stuff out of it, and then adopt sort of a middle of the road policy. Don't be so rigid. Give the fellows a chance to drink a little beer once in a while. Of course, not a meeting nights or anything like that, you know, but uh, once in a while. Uh, and somehow they didn't go for the idea of the dam. And if they didn't, why well, they could struggle on the cell, I left. I said, Bill, I'll, will you forget that? I'd like to know about this, and I wish you'd tell me. And I'll never really forget that guy, how kind he was to sit there on that old couch and told me about AA, especially after hitting on my lip a few weeks before. And this is what he told me. He said it was a, 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 a physical fellow, a fellowship, a spiritual fellowship, not a religious one. And that if we lived in such a way as to deserve it, we could get help to control our drinking problem. Not cure it, control it. And then he pointed out almost in the same breath that it was very important for me to go out and help other people. He suggested a plan for me that every morning before I went to the office that I should spend a little time on the prayer and meditation asking God to say sober that day, and that night to express my gratitude in prayer and meditation. Well, that didn't go, because I, <clears throat> I, I didn't want any part of prayer. I had no faith in God, I had no faith in my fellow man, no faith in myself. Because the morning I left that seminary, I turned my back on God. I turned back my back on all the good my parents had taught me, and I dug the hole, my hole myself. I never bothered with God. Now that I'm down to the bottom of it, after all those years without bothering God, I thought it would be a sacrilege to ask you to help me. Well, in second thought, I boy, you better do something because you're at the end of your course, this is the last chance. I didn't realize then that it wasn't my last chance. 
It was my first real chance that I ever had to do anything constructive about my drinking. But still, I couldn't swallow this prayer business because I hadn't been any faith in it. I recall the first time I was arrested and put in jail. That, I, that night, I remembered things I'd heard in the first Sunday school lessons, how the early Christians, when they were placed in jail, through their prayers and the prayers of their friends, the bars dropped down, the locks opened up, and they walked out three people. Well, I want to tell you, fellas, I had never prayed all myself out of a jail cell I ever had to do any constructive about my drinking. But still, I couldn't swallow this prayer business because I hadn't been any faith in it. I recall the first time I was arrested and put in jail. That, I, that night, I remembered things I'd heard in the first Sunday school lessons, how the early Christians, when they were placed in jail, through their prayers and the prayers of their friends, the bars dropped down, the locks opened up, and they walked out three people. Well, I want to tell you, fellas, I had never prayed all myself out of a jail cell in my life. Never once. Somebody always had to come down and get the ten dollars in cost that I stayed there. So I had no faith in prayer. And then when I went broke, I used to pray for a pocket but with sixty dollars in it. I don't know why it wasn't forty or seventy, and I really found more than two bits. So I didn't want a part of that. But I knew I had to do something. And I decided on this. I would go into AA for thirty days, I would do everything they told me to do, and I would do it religiously, and I dared them to sober me up. That's why I started AA. I went down to my first meeting on my own steam, and after the meeting was over, Dr. Bob went on the order and said, what do you think about it? Well, I said, I'm confused. I feel like I'm a kid going to school. He says, well, in the sense of the words you were, he said, AA is an institution of learning. He said, here, we find that there's no room, no rules made for the teacher to resign. There's no provision made for the pupil to graduate. He said, we're both the pupil and the teacher. And that night, I learned from Dr. Bob that it was just important for me to learn as it was to teach and just important to pray as to preach. He quoted a little essay. He said, uh, A little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep or taste not of this Paranian spring, where a shallow glass intoxicate the brain, and drinking deeply sobers us again. Now, I said, I want you to stay with the fellows who know about this thing and learn all you can. Well, that wasn't as easy as sound, because after all, Bill and Doc were the only persons who really knew what the score was. A hell of a lot of them at that time didn't even know there was a game on but I did what I could. I went to these meetings, and I sat there and I listened. I heard things I didn't like. I heard things I disagreed with. But I listened. And during this, my mind was terribly injured by drinking. I couldn't think straight. I couldn't concentrate. There was a time in school when I could memorize almost as I went. I never took notes. I <coughs> kept it in my head. Now I can't remember what I did yesterday afternoon. I have to recover. I have to heal my mind. And during that terrible period of turmoil and embarrassment, these words came to help me gain my sobriety. I used to pump a pipe organ in the church. I got a half a dollar Sunday for it. And one Sunday, despite the fact that I had never listened to what the pastor saying, I was always standing back at that screen figuring out what I could buy with 50 cents. But one Sunday he said, when you pray, give us this day our daily bread. He said, be sure your tablecloth's clean, and then you'll have a better chance to get your daily bread. I knew then and there, if I expected that God to help me with my sobriety, I was going to have to clean my tablecloth. I've been cleaning at it now over 26 years, and there's still spots in it, and perhaps it's just as well. If I could have gotten it snow white when I was, after 15 years, I doubt very much it would be incentive, incentive for me to stay in the AA. But since there's spots in it, I'm going to stay as long as I'm physically and mentally able to be active in this fellowship, because it's been a very rare thing for me. So I kept on going, and finally things began a little bit lighter, seemed a little lighter outside, a little brighter inside, and then one day it happened. I got a chance to make a 12-step call. A fellow from the hill, who has been a hillbilly, been drinking since he was 13 years old, written in the New York office, and wanted, wanted to help her 
wanted help for his drinking, and they gave me the call. I went out to see him that uh, Sunday morning, zero weather, and I finally found him in a poverty-stricken hovel, one room. And on the windowsill, there was a half a loaf of bread and half a bottle of milk, and that had been the menu for days. There was a woman there. She had a grip pack and was ready to leave. A little boy, about six or seven years old, and he was standing in the corner crying. Every time he opened his mouth, he got a slap shut. I finally got her to give another chance. We quieted the boy down, and then I went over to talk to this fellow on the bed. He was standing there shaking as I had never seen a man shake before, and I was scared. It was my first call. I don't know what I said to him. I talked about ten minutes, and I'm damn sure he doesn't know what I said either. Well, he followed me out to the door, and he asked me, can you come back tomorrow? I went back the next day, and the next day, and the next day. I was in I was going to have this kitten. He was going to be mine. And finally, he quit. The shakes were over, and he went back to work again. And then, in the three months following, I saw the whole marvelous miracle of AA unfold right before my very eyes. I went down to his house about two weeks after he started work, and she met me at the door, and she was all flushed. She said, he gave me all of it. He told me to take care of it. And she showed me the first industrial paycheck she'd ever seen. He'd always cash his check on the way home. She never knew what he made. And he said, I'm to run it now. And she was beginning to get something out of the air. A couple of weeks later, I went down. That little boy came out, laid down a pair of shoes, a top coat, and a romper suit. Looked up my eyes and said, Mister, he's my dad got these for me. He said, I ain't scared of them anymore. And then for the first time in my life, I realized how many people we hurt other than ourselves when we drink. The little boy was getting something out of this now. You see, I had a little boy, a little girl, and no doubt I've hurt them many times like this kid was hurt. In fact, it hurts even now to talk about it. I went on, everything's going fine. This fellow's turned out fine. He was, it was like getting a big order on your first experience as a salesman. Got into my blood, and I started doing a lot of 12-step work. I think going fine. But for one thing, there was one fly in my ointment. From the time I came into AA, I heard stories of men's personal spiritual experiences that were nothing short of marvelous, wonderful things. And somehow or other, I never had any. I never heard the angels floating on my shoulders. I used to listen for them. I couldn't hear any angel wings. And uh, I was a little bit disgusted at that. I thought I was being discriminated because I didn't have experience. I don't know when Bill Wilson used to come to meetings with Doc, and he told about this a number of different times, that when the last time he was in the hospital, when he thought he was going to die, he got out of bed and prayed, oh, God, if there is a God, will help me now? And then he said he thought the lights in the room flared up into a dazzling brilliance, a white, blinding light. And then he thought he was sitting, standing way off on the hill, and the wind was blowing through and cleansing his body and soul. And then he was really scared, because he thought he was going insane. And when Dr. Silkworth came back into the room, he asked me about it. And the doctor had been a less tired man, less understanding man, and told Billy it was not then and there, it would have been the end of AA. But Doc was honest enough to tell him, and in his career, there had been several instances where men who had un- incurable diseases suddenly had them arrested by something they called a spiritual experience. He said, I don't know what you have, Bill, but whatever it is, for God's sake, hang on to it. So I used to go home at night. I'd flop down to the board and I'd look up that old chandelier, and I'd watch it, and I'd watch it, and I'd watch it, and watch it. Nothing ever happened. Once in a while, a bulb burned out. That's about all. <laughs> and I was pretty well disgusted. If they could shine up for Bill, why couldn't they flare up a little bit for me? Christmas came. I passed up the party. I went home. About four o'clock in the afternoon, my wife went out to deliver some gifts, and I went upstairs to my own office in my home to meditate and take a little inventory. And going up the steps, I had this feeling that for the first time since meeting had been a problem for me, I was reasonably happy. Now, I don't mean to say that I was digging down my sleeve or anything like that, but I had a nice, warm, inner feeling that I was getting along well with my wife, 
Well, we're divorced, the neighbors and I were getting along, we're fine. And my income was ample for very comfortable living. And then I began to tear that down, that fell apart. The boss couldn't make me happy when I was sober. The doctors couldn't, the psychiatrists couldn't, the clergy couldn't, my brothers and sisters couldn't. Needless to say, I couldn't do it myself. And then I happened to remember, I must be getting help from somewhere. And I remembered what Bill told me down at the sanitarium that morning when I was explaining AA to me. And I figured it out. This was getting spirit. I must be getting spiritual help. So I went up to my room and I picked up a dictionary, one-line dictionary, and looked up the word spiritual. And it said pertaining to the heavenly. And then I looked up the word heavenly and said pertaining to the good. I put the book down and I thought to myself, is this it? If I live good and, and, and uh, talk good and do good and pray to a good God, choose the good and the bad, or act goodly, which is synonymous with godly, doesn't it necessarily follow that I'm leading a spiritual life? I thought it did. I know, I know that's too broad a definition for the theologian, and I'm not asking you to accept it. But it was a simple belief for me, and I'm a simple fellow, and I like my ears simple. It made it a little easier for me to tell me, the man who was in bed, with all his mind all the cause of alcohol, that he need not fear this word spiritual. It was a matter of leading a good life. The kind of life your mother taught you to lead, live in your tavern and your apron string. I accepted for that. Now, when I came into AA, I came into here for sobriety, and that was all. But in gaining my sobriety, I gained an entirely new conception of God. I think my first conception of God came from the Sunday school leaflet. He was sitting on a golden throne way out in the distance, and the angels were playing harps all the way around him. And that's about as close as I ever came to God, somebody way off in the distance. Through AA, I have gained a great and lasting faith in God, much greater faith than I ever gained while I was going to church. So I have spent my life with AA instead of church for that reason. Again, I don't ask you to accept that. That's what I do. I have come to a field, I get a doubt, and my new concept of God is simply this, that God is a power of good, and that power of good has been available to me all my life, from the time I was a boy, when I was going to high school, when I got, when I got married, when I moved to Cleveland, when I moved to, to California. I said, so it's available to me tonight. It'll be available to me tomorrow night, next week, and next year. And I have a feeling that I can be as close to God as I deserve to be. And if I'm not as close to God tonight as I was a month ago, six weeks ago, or a year ago, I know full well that I'm the one that moved, for I learned to know that God is forever constant. I tell you, I told you I had a great love and faith in God, and I do. If I were to ask God for a very special favor tonight, I couldn't think of anything finer to ask for than just the privilege of carrying this word of AA to the sick alcoholic for my last hour on this earth. Because then, and only then, will I really know where I made this program. I don't uh, look on God anymore, as my grandparents taught me about all that hell uh, and brimstone and sulfur and that sort of thing. I think that the way God, the path that God laid out for us to follow, can be just as comfortable as an old shoe, just as practical as a kitchen chair once we get adjusted to it. It's been a wonderful thing to me. I like to sum my spiritual experience in in this way. I look on God as a great power in my life. <clears throat> and I like to think of him as a great light that shines across the pathway in my life. All I have to do is face that light, and the shadows will have to fall back on me. It's as simple as that. Now, before I close, I'd like to turn the pages back to a little bit of AA history, and then I'll let you write. It'll be very short. When I came into the Fellowship of Alphabets and Honest, we had no traditions. We had no guides of any kind. Necessarily, all problems that came up, all new problems came up, were solved by trial and error. 
and sometimes we can very nearly resort him to our fists. And that's not exactly the way to win friends and influence people. Uh, we were an imminent share and so we group of people, and every, every one of us was hell-bent to run the show to suit ourselves, come hell or high water. Arguing and disagreeing was a favorite indoor and outdoor sport. There were many times when we had just caused the fear that internal dissension, arguments, intolerance, jealousy would destroy me before it got off the field. But this unhappy state of affairs changed. In fact, we were so disagreeing with her, there was only one thing we could agree on. We agreed fully on this, that there were two sides to every question, our side and the wrong side. Well, this unhappy situation brought about a condition that gave birth to the idea of establishing a uniform code of morals or standards or ethics for everybody to go by, at least which later became known as the Twelve Traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's no denying the statement that A owes its very life to the Twelve Traditions, because strict adherence to those traditions brought order out of chaos and reduced this dissension to a minimum and to encourage the formation of unity, which is essential to our growth. The longer I remain in AA, the more conscious I become of my individual responsibility, and that's a non-transferable responsibility. To carry this message to the alcoholic that still suffers as long as I'm physically and mentally able to do so. I think that every man or woman who has gained sobriety in AA has that, uh, it takes on that immediate responsibility. And I believe if Abraham Lincoln had been an AA, I think he would express himself somewhat in this way about the responsibility. One score and ten years ago, our co-founders brought forth a new plan, conceived in love and service, and dedicated to the proposition that the alcoholic can be restored by the grace of God and the help of his fellow AAs. Today, we are engaged in a great humane effort to make that plan available to all who may be concerned. But we cannot dedicate. We cannot consecrate. We cannot further this great cause by mere words of mouth, but by, but by assuming our responsible to personally carry the message to those who still suffer. The world will little note and will long remember who we are, or what we are, or what we do here will never be forgotten. And it's for us who are willing and able to ever increase our efforts in this great field of endeavor without hope of gain, reward, or recognition. It is ours to hold high the torch and to work with increased devotion to the unfinished task which lies before us. And it is for us to highly resolve that this new way of life, granted by God, shall not have been given in vain, and that this fellowship of AA, by AA, and for AA shall not perish in this earth. Thank you. Thank you.